This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to talk about an issue that many of our listeners have asked us to talk about, an issue that I think uh, every American is thinking about in one way or another, the question about uh, how changes in abortion laws across our country are affecting the lives of ordinary citizens. This is an essential question for our democracy, the theme of our podcast, because uh, so many people are affected in their daily lives and their health choices and their family choices by the laws that we have uh, surrounding who can get access to medical care and who can have a child and who cannot. And uh, as all of our listeners know, uh, in the last few months, the landscape for abortion access in the United States has changed fundamentally uh, with a summer decision from the Supreme Court that eliminated uh, federal protections for some basic abortion rights that had been in place since 1973, since the Roe v. Wade decision. And then with new state laws, particularly in Texas, but in many other states, that have now used uh, the end of the Roe v. Wade protections to now institute trigger laws, as they're called, that limit abortion access uh, to many women in many situations. In Texas, uh, abortion is restricted except in the most extreme cases where the uh, woman's life is is at risk. Uh, We are fortunate today to be joined uh, by a local medical professional, one of the leading medical professionals in Austin, uh, who works on these issues uh, on a day-to-day basis. This is Dr. Jasper Singh. He is a specialist in maternal fetal medicine, and he's in private practice here in Austin uh, with the Austin Maternal Fetal Medicine Organization, which is affiliated with St. David's Medical System uh, here in Austin. Uh, Dr. Singh, Jasper, it's really wonderful to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Jasper, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary's uh, opening poem. What's your poem titled today, Zachary? Ode to a Doctor. Ode to a Doctor. Now, do you mean a, a, a doctor of philosophy, a historian like me? No, oh, certainly you, not. You mean a doctor like Jasper, who actually does <laughs> real a things. Real doctor, <laughs> a real doctor. Thank you. Doctor is defined in many ways. <laughs> All those history PhDs out there, you see how little respect we get. <laughs> you okay. should be offended. <laughs> Zachary, let's hear it. Ode to a Doctor. The doctor sits back in his chair. He is leaning on his pillow. He is sipping his wine. We are free and reclining because we survived. In the broken rhythms of his hands, I can see the people he has lost, the ones who wouldn't listen, the ones who couldn't see how much he cared. And there are words he wants to say to them, perhaps, I'm sorry, or perhaps, how dare you, because he is no great general, but a healer. Here is no great general, but a man. Please, we do not need to forgive you, for you give us a lifetime all over again, forty births a day when they are born and you hold them up to the light, angelic. Please, we do not need to forgive you, for you give us a reminder of remembrance of our own fragility, of all the random bursts of light, the shakes of the great stick of destiny that could have been different that could have sent us halfway across the world to a great wooden ship floating on a rolling blue sea. 
not to be afraid. That is the key. Please, we do not need to forgive you, because I know there is nothing to be forgiven. Because I know, doctor, you have made me laugh, even if sometimes you make them cry. I, I love the narrative, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, trying to understand um, how doctors who are in, in, in such and such close contact with, with life and death situations, um, how, how they're able to cope with uh, that level of, uh, of responsibility, and, um, but also at the same time how important it is, how, how vital it is that we have doctors who do that work. Absolutely. That's, that's uh, pretty insightful, Zach, because that, that almost made me cry. Um, uh, I really like the line for those that, that listened and those that didn't, uh, to paraphrase. But yes, that's, that's been our life for the last few years, too. So well done. Thank you. Uh, Jasper, I noticed on your uh, professional website that you have a, a really moving video of your own where you uh, you talk about uh, how you listen as a doctor and how you interact with um, different patients and, and all the stress and emotion that surrounds pregnancy. Uh, how, how has your already difficult work dealing with abnormal and difficult pregnancies for all sorts of individuals, how has that changed with the changes in the abortion laws? Quite significantly, uh, significantly, and it's a change that really hasn't started recently. I'd say that most of the changes that I've seen in interactions with people actually began a couple years before that with the pandemic. Um, it's been quite challenging in the last two years. Um, we've seen patients who question everything, uh, and that's made it very, very difficult. Can you give us some examples or some uh, some ways of, of understanding that without, of course, revealing any private information from patients? Certainly, certainly, and, and I have a flurry of thoughts. So I'm trying to trying to trying to be sort of organized in my thoughts here. Sure. But there, there's a, a hundred different stories, anecdotes that I could share with you. But um, you know, before this abortion change. Uh, in the recent landscape, COVID has been the predominant story in physicians' lives and in medical care lives. And um, we all are certainly aware of the, the, the politicization of medical decision-making about specialties, about specialists, and, you know, people who understand things in different ways but then the general public questions the validity of their arguments from their own insight. Um, so if, you know, if I was to speak, for example, about Dr. Fauci, uh, I have friends that I interact with that are non-medical who have said some things that are quite disturbing. Um, but over the course of my medical education and career, Dr. Fauci is probably the wisest person you will ever meet. And the fact that somebody of such intellect, respect, and stature is, is, has mud thrown against his name, I think frames the context of the world we live in right now. Um, it's very difficult for me to, to talk about that. And, and in the current environment, a lot of healthcare providers have been really challenged um, by that politicization um, and just a lack of 
belief in specialists and people who have studied things and have a greater understanding of some of those things beyond their Google search. Right, right. You you have a, a statement on your uh, professional site on your video about the the challenges of Doctor Google. I, I thought that was a wonderful phrase, Jasper. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the biggest, most difficult things in medicine these days is having an understanding of certain individual, say, symptoms like a runny nose or an abnormality on an ultrasound or an abnormal test, and putting it into a greater context. And I can I can share some of those stories. Um, say, for example, as a maternal fetal medicine specialist, I get a lot of patients who are referred uh, for, say, an ultrasound where a baby is not growing too well, where a baby measures small. Uh, and there are concerns that perhaps the baby is not growing well in the environment of the uterus. Um, dare I use the word sick? Um, but there are a lot of normal babies that can be small. Um, I use this um, anecdote all the time. If I have a Filipino couple, and no disrespect to people of Filipino descent, but we know them to be of smaller stature, and historically, statistically speaking, they will have small babies. And so if I was to have, say, somebody of Asian descent come to me and refer to me because their baby is small, they can only think of the bad things, that something is terribly wrong with their baby because they've done a Google search and they find all the bad things and all the bad stories that people have shared. Right. But truthfully, there's a reasonably good chance that their baby's doing fine and it's just because of their ethnic and genetic background that their baby is measuring a little bit outside of the normative curve. So there's a lot of panic and anxiety that comes with people who do their two-minute Google search, read briefly, hear and read some words that really sort of triggers anxiety, which then leads to a bias. And then when you start searching for those things, it leads to a confirmatory bias that they find on the internet. And this is, this is the same thing in politics, in history, and everything else that we're dealing with in the world today. So I think here then we have sort of a, a twofold problem, right? We have the... Um the 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 over um, uh, the proliferation of of if not disinformation then misleading information uh, about uh, uh, medical conditions etc. But we also have a legal landscape, especially here in Texas, um, where you work with patients, um, that seems to make your job a, a lot more difficult. Yeah. Uh, how has that affected your job? It's a really good question. Um, so if I may take a step back um, and talk in general about what it is I do, I, I think I really just dived into it. If I could take a step back and just talk about what it means to be a maternal fetal medicine specialist. So in general, I take care of complicated pregnancies. I take care of a lot of normal people, but anything, anytime something falls outside of the norm, um, people in my field of specialty are consulted or consul a consultation is obtained to evaluate the situation and make recommendations. That is often from a patient's standpoint, very anxiety-ridden, uh, angst-ridden. Um, if I was to generalize, most people, when they discover that they're pregnant, it's, it's a joyous day. If you're starting your family, it's a, certainly an important event in one's lifetime. And, and 
instantly our brain goes to all the positive thoughts that come with having a family and children. I'm going to have a boy. I'm going to have a girl. I'm going to play catch. I'm going to comb her hair and put braids. She's going to go to that school. We're going to, we're going to really hope that our child does X, Y, and Z in life. And nobody really ever thinks about the potential pitfalls that can arise in a pregnancy. And so when someone's referred to us, we're the first person that really sort of pulls the rug out from under their feet and it's kind of a reality check. And so that, that stomping on the brakes leads to patients who walk into my door with loads of anxiety, loads of anxiety, um, and rightfully so, right? We've all, we're all parents. There are a lot of parents that listen to this podcast, and, and we would do anything for the benefit of our children. And we want to make sure that our, you know, we've done nothing wrong and that our children are healthy. And so that's the basis of why when I have interactions with patients, it's often very anxiety-ridden. It's often fraught with a lot of preconceptions, their Google search, they get very scared and nervous. And, and a lot of my job is counseling, hand-holding, and, and sort of trying to bring the concerns and fears down from the worst to something that's perhaps a little bit more manageable. And so in that context as well, to answer your question, Zach, in that context, when there is something that's quite seriously wrong, when you add this new layer of anxiety that your state and your local government prohibits or limits your choices, it sends it through the roof into the stratosphere. The anxiety, the hate, the guilt, all of those things really takes off. Does it make it at times impossible for you to recommend the care that you know the the woman and the fetus need? That's a difficult question to answer um, because it's it's really a, not a question necessarily of need all the time. Um, it's more of a question of choice. Um, what are the choices that I can make for myself and for my family? What it is that I'm willing to accept or not accept, that's what makes it difficult. Um, there are very rare cases where it, um, this new legal landscape um, prohibits choices that improve outcomes, and I can talk about that more, um, specifically, particularly as it pertains to twins and multiple gestations twins, triplets, quadruplets. Um, but most of the time, it's it's pertaining directly to a patient choice. Right, right. But there are cases, and, and, and maybe we're reading about the most extreme versions of them, right? But there do seem to be cases where um, it, it, it could be very dangerous for the mother to move forward. And yet, it, it seems as if the current laws would limit the choice the mother would have about protecting her own health, yes? Yes, yes. There's, there's, there's a lot of bad information thrown out there, particularly about things like ectopic pregnancies. Uh, if you don't know what an ectopic pregnancy is, that's where a pregnancy implants somewhere outside of the womb, say in a tube. And the potential is, is that it, it, it can't grow to term there. It could rupture and it could lead to bleeding, that could then be life-threatening. And um, there have been some politicians that have said that even that 
is no longer an acceptable treatment, that we were to just leave that alone, um, knowing that we're sitting on a potential time bomb that could then gravely affect a mom's life. Um, so, But that really hasn't come into play. The current law allows us to intervene specifically for things like ectopic pregnancies um, where it impacts the mother's health. Another example that I, I also interact with is, say, a mom who's had a certain heart condition for which pregnancy carries too much risk, uh, where the morbidity and mortality of remaining pregnant threatens her life. And those are situations uh, where we still have the ability to intervene to protect the mom's life. What about the case, though, where you have um, a, a, let's say, an, a, an older mother where there's, there are many risk factors, uh, nothing quite as explicit as that, but there are serious concerns and the, the, the mother herself has doubts. Uh, are, are options now closed off that would have been open before? In our state, they are, yes. Um, there are resources. There are plenty of resources available to moms. Um, they can certainly go out of state. Uh, New Mexico, Colorado have been the closest and most accessible, and that's the place that most of my patients have gone to to get to exercise their choice. Um, I've had patients go to Chicago. Chicago is very easily accessible by airplane. It's a large metropolitan city with a lot of academic institutions. So I have sent a few patients to Chicago as well to get the things that they need um, or to, you know, make the choices that they want to make. But if I may, um, there, this comes up every day. Every day we have a mom where there's an abnormality on the ultrasound. Uh, or an abnormal genetic screening test, say uh, what we call a blood test or non-invasive prenatal testing, which would suggest a problem. Um, And so, yes, certain populations like moms that are over age 35 are certainly at higher risk of those types of things. And if we start to have some tests that suggest problems, um, we then need to talk through diagnostic testing. Um, If I could use a separate metaphor, I have a mammogram that's abnormal, that suggests a cancer. It doesn't mean I have a cancer. We would then need to do a biopsy to determine if there's a cancer. And so one's a screening test and one's a diagnostic test. In the same way in obstetrics, there is tests, blood tests, genetic tests that are screening tests, which would suggest a problem. And ultrasound is also a screening test, by the way, uh, that would suggest a problem. And then we would talk through invasive testing like amniocentesis or CVS. Um, Those tests are not currently limited by the legal landscape um, in Texas. Um, But at the same time, currently... If I have a mom who has an abnormality, I don't want her to feel as though that is necessary in order for her to proceed with making any choice that she wants. Let me elaborate further. Uh, I have a mom who's in her early 40s, and this is quite common actually. These days, a lot of women are putting off childbearing due to career and education until their late 30s. And 
a lot of my practice is taking care of mothers in their late 30s and early 40s. It's it's quite common these days. Uh, not to say that it's bad, but it does carry some risks. So, for example, I have a mom who's, say, 40, 41. She's 10 to 12 weeks pregnant. Um, she's had a blood test that can tell her the gender of her baby. And she's super excited because she wants to know if she's having a boy or a girl. But the blood test also suggests a problem with one of the chromosomes, like say, for example, Down syndrome. Um, and so they come in with a level of concern. They've, they've waited a very long time to get pregnant. Now they've got a concern about an abnormality and then they come to us and they, you know, first thing that happens when they come to see us is they'll get an ultrasound. Um, and in this hypothetical patient, she now has an abnormality on the ultrasound that increases that risk or probability of Down syndrome even higher. And um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, before the Supreme Court um, overturned Roe v. Wade, um, Texas had a couple of limitations in place. There was a 24-hour waiting period before someone could terminate a pregnancy. Um, Another... Um, legal hurdle put in front of providers in healthcare and, and patients was you needed to have an ultrasound and the mom needed to hear the heartbeat of the baby before you could proceed with a termination. Um, and so those were seen sort of as hurdles. And so if somebody comes to me and say I'm quoting them a greater than 95% probability before I ever do any other kind of testing that I think your baby probably has Down syndrome. Um, I don't want them to feel as though they have to have another hurdle before they make those kinds of decisions. You really shouldn't have a need to have a reason to make that kind of choice, truthfully. If you decide that this isn't right for you or this isn't feeling right, or even if you feel like, you know, you read the tea leaves this morning and you just didn't feel it was right, or for whatever reason, you know, for religious or spiritual reasons that someone doesn't feel like this isn't the right time or the right pregnancy, you should be able to do what you want to do. And so um, in those situations, um, a patient can then go get, a procedure to terminate the pregnancy if that's something they wanted to do. Um, I I don't ever want a patient to feel as though a procedure is required in order to make those types of decisions. Right. But they would, under current law, they could not make the choice. They can't make any choice. Can I ask, can I ask you folks a question? Do you, do you, do you understand the debate about why some people feel that abortion is wrong versus those that feel that it is right. What is your perspective, if I might ask? Zachary? Well, I, I think that, I mean, I, I'm able to, I, I'm, I can respect people who, who don't feel that abortion is a moral decision to make. And I think there are reasonable people who can make an argument that it is in something immoral, but they, my, my, my strong belief is that you shouldn't, you shouldn't, um, restrict someone else's, uh, decision-making power and, and, and their choice about their own body based on your, um, personal, uh, and it is very personal, moral or, or religious conviction. 
and 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 that's the way this country should work, right? I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So if I, at its core, the entire abortion debate, debate is centered on when does life begin? That's the central factor to all of this. Right. And as much as I may disagree with those that are anti-abortion, um, I respect and understand where they're coming from. Uh, there are people who strongly believe that the moment of conception is when life begins. Um, and then there are those that say life begins when you are born and you leave the womb. And since no one can define truly, no one can say this is when life begins, therein lies the debate. The debate is, is that child in the womb, whether it's 10 weeks or 26 weeks, is that a living person, quote unquote, doesn't have a soul? And since nobody can answer that question scientifically, therein lies the two sides. And while I respect those that feel that life begins at the moment of conception, this country needs to function, or at least my personal belief is, this country needs to function to the lowest common denominator. We need to be able to have freedom for all people of all choices and all thought processes. And so when I frame decisions like this, if I was the Supreme Court, what would an atheist believe? Or what would someone with no beliefs of life, if that's the right way of saying it, how would they approach this problem? And at, at its core, that's how I believe our country is supposed to function. Just like we're supposed to be able to protect the rights of free speech and, you know, far-right thinkers, even Nazis or the KKK, while we disagree with them, we have to respect their freedom of speech. In the same way, those that believe life begins at the moment of conception should respect those that don't believe that life begins at conception. And in a truly, in a government that doesn't that is, has true separation of church and state, that's honestly, in my opinion, the way this should work. And that's how I approach my patients. I, I take completely neutral stance. And it's challenging because you don't know what a person's beliefs are when you talk to them and when you start having these difficult discussions. And it is, it is like walking through a minefield. You have a patient who's very anxious is loaded with a lot of emotion and anxiety when they walk in your room. And if you say something inappropriate, incorrectly, or disparaging, it can lead to a bad interaction. How do you and, and other healthcare providers like yourself cope with this, this um, not just political climate, uh, but I think uh, social climate that, that, that views these health decisions um, which are in many ways um, deeply personal, as somehow political. Uh, how do you deal with that on a patient by patient basis? How how do you uh, how do you maintain your scientific integrity uh, while also at the same time having to navigate this political minefield? 
Well, that's something I have to rely on my training. Um, we are taught to not bring in our own personal bias, be it religious or spiritual, or our own biases um, that have, have taught us experiences in the past. We are taught through years of training to be as objective and as scientific as possible. What do I mean by that? Um, we present facts, and this is what I mean by my job is mostly hand-holding and counseling. I need to, if I'm doing my job correctly, I have counseled the patient. I've provided objective statistics about what I believe their risks are or what are the concerns, and I allow the patient to make their own decisions. And after initially counseling them on what it is I'm concerned about, we then talk about, okay, well, what would the next step be? What if we find out X, Y, and Z? And we have to very gently tippy-toe around it. Um, and we, we, once we, as a provider, once I've established through conversation that a patient might be open to the idea of termination, we can talk further, but some are completely against it and we don't discuss it any further. And, and Jasper, how has the political climate affected the institution you work in, your medical practice? We, we hear stories all the time about um, violent threats to um, particular clinics and things. Have, have you confronted any of that? Have you seen any change in that environment in the last few years? In the past, about 10 years ago, when I first started, um, we had a lot more leeway and liberties to do procedures and um, fetal therapies in the office. Um, one of the things that occurred prior to all of this through the bureaucracy of our state in adding hurdles to medical care, they asked, the state asked that any person who's providing termination services register that with the state. And that any time a termination is performed, that those individual cases need to be reported to the state, effectively making public record any time a termination would occur. And, and Jasper, if I could just ask, do you do that for other medical procedures? No. So is it, I mean, is that something specific to terminations of that kind, or is it something that applies to other kinds of, you know, heart issues and various other things? So if I was to talk about terminations loosely, it could be for, I don't do any kind of elective terminations. I don't do, let me establish, I don't do any terminations at all. And what I was trying to get to is, is that a termination may be decided for any medical reason, be it a heart issue, an right. abnormality, a malformation, a genetic problem, got it, or, or some maternal condition, um, say a mom who's had a heart attack in the past and her heart's too weak to handle pregnancy. So there's a, a laundry list of reasons why someone might choose to terminate a pregnancy. And we had a lot more leeway in the past. But once the state made it sort of public record, we as a system, as a practice, decided that we didn't want that type of attention. And there were practitioners in town. There was Planned Parenthood, who has some of the most fabulous providers, people 
who work there, who I highly support. Planned Parenthood, um, shout out to all of you guys for doing the amazing work that you were able to do for so long. Um, there were providers in town who were willing to do that. And, and um, we then exclusively referred to them. Why did you make that decision as a, as a practice? At the end of the day, we want to be able to help people. We want to take care of people. And there are still a lot of people that we can care for for other conditions of pregnancy. And we, we chose that it was the lesser evil to refer that out because there were other people who were willing to do that. And, and we didn't want to have the negative press associated with it that would then keep people away from our office. Again, going back to people are already anxious when they come to our office for a hundred different reasons. And then if, if, if by chance someone was protesting or someone had posted somewhere online that we did terminations or that we had a lower view or a, a, a perspective on life, we didn't want that perception out there. So we, we chose that that was just a, a fight we were going to stay away from. So, Jasper, you've given us so many insights here, and I really appreciate your um, your honesty and your your thoughtfulness around these issues. We we always like to close our episodes with a a, a positive message, lessons that we can take from the expertise and the history that we discuss to to make our society better, to improve our democracy. Uh, what is the advice you would have for our young listeners who who care about these issues and want to make a difference? Um, what are the things they could do to to help maternal health and help fetal health in our state? What 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 needs to be done in our state? Um, the people that are going to be most affected by these new laws are the underserved. Um, if you have the means to go out of state to obtain these services, those people are generally not terribly affected. It's the people who can't afford the plane, a bus ticket, or the medical care out of state that are most affected by these these new laws and regulations. And so if you were young and you wanted to help and have an impact on the people here in the state of Texas, um, provide funding and support. Um, donate to these programs. New Mexico has been a, become a uh, has been and has become an even larger resource center for people who want to exercise their choice, and they need they need funds, they need manpower, and they need help. And if you can provide donation or charitable uh, donations to those those folks, I think that will be the best way to helping. That's that's very helpful, Zachary. What do you think? I know this is an issue that you're deeply concerned about. What do you take from Jasper's uh, recounting of the experience day to day around these issues? Well, I think my biggest takeaway is is the ways in which the politi- politicization of, of medicine and of the uh, important decisions, the choices that we as patients. Um, but also as medical professionals um, are able to provide and are able to receive, that those are limited significantly um, when we refuse to um, acknowledge the science, but also when we refuse to when we refuse to allow people to make their own decisions. 
And I think that's really what we've been shown today. Right, right. I, I agree. I, I think what, what uh, Jasper's given us in a very thoughtful and fair-minded way is not uh, a diatribe on what we should think about abortion, but the reality and insight into the reality that uh, women in particular are facing much more difficult circumstances with restricted choices and that some of the medical care that would make the most sense under their circumstances, under the choices they want to make in their lives, those, the, those, those medical options are being closed off to them. And I, I think Jasper's suggestion to help people go elsewhere to get those medical services makes sense in the short run, but that's certainly not sustainable. And uh, would you agree, Jasper? Certainly, certainly not. Yeah, no, I think we just, you know, it's, 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 it's very simple. We just need to get out and vote and, and get the right people in office who are open-minded and um, hold true what's been true in this country since, since I was born. It's, it's, it's an important fight and we need to, to keep women's choices open. Let them make their choice. And let them have access to the highly trained, skilled medical professionals like you, Jasper, who they might not have access to if they have to try to cut costs and go somewhere else. Exactly. Exactly. I I think one of the themes of our podcast, week in and week out, is that one of the key elements of democracy is providing opportunity to people to live the kinds of lives that they want to lead. And... um, uh, the abortion issue is therefore not really just about one's religious point of view. One is entitled to whatever point of view they have, but it's about the deepest tradition of democracy, which is empowering people to, based on their views, make the best choices for themselves. And I think Jasper's given us a real insight into how those choices are being restricted by restrictions on our democracy today. These are things that can change, as Jasper said, as Zachary said. Um, there's not a Supreme Court uh, law now that is operative, but every state and uh, are at the federal level, the choice is to be made also by legislators as to what is uh, legally protected and what isn't. And our listeners who care about these issues uh, need to make their voices heard. Uh, I think that's essential. And I think Jasper's given us real insight into to why that's so important. Uh, Jasper, Dr. Singh, thank you for, for joining us. I should have said earlier, we are also good friends. Our families are good friends. And uh, I just want to say, Jasper, that I, I've always had such such high regard for the work you do every day to try to make uh, people's lives better. Uh, thank you for all that you do, Jasper. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you for having me on your show. Zachary, thank you for your poem and your insights as always. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.